welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. You may have noticed, based on the songs we've sung and the prayers that have been prayed, that our theme today is centering on the kingdom of God. So I'm going to just read one verse out of Psalm 145. I'm going to read verse 13, and then we'll jump in. This is a Psalm of David, and he says in verse 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises, and faithful in all he does. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our church's mission statement is written in fancy metal letters, on the wall, in the lobby, over the water fountain, next to the coffee bar. It reads, to invite people to experience the reality of life in the kingdom of God. And this week, and then again next week, we're going to finish our reboot series by considering the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, I don't like saying what I'm about to say because it feels greasy to me, a little manipulative actually. But what we are talking about the next two weeks, God the King and his kingdom is foundational and essential to the Christian faith, and it is foundational and essential to the whole entire biblical story. In fact, a strong case could be made, I think, that the kingdom of God is the Bible's favorite subject and primary theme. And in rather profound and incredibly practical ways, what we're talking about over the next two weeks can actually be a game changer in how we view God, how we live out our faith, how we discern the purpose for our lives, how we navigate through the various struggles we have in life, how we endure the chaos and brokenness of this world, how we endure the upcoming presidential election, how we face our own death, and how we think about eternity. It's that important and that big of a deal. And again, I realize this sounds like my sales pitch to get you to show up and pay attention, knowing some of you these days, like Jenna Glynn, are laser-focused on the 49ers (laughs) and the upcoming Super Bowl. And I sound like I'm cutting into that. Well, this is more important, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I actually get that. I I don't like playing that card. And hopefully you know me and know I don't like the silly game of this is really important, so you should tune in. But I believe this is really important in life-giving and joy-inducing ways. The kingdom of God is one paradigm to understand what God has been doing in the past, what he is doing in the present, and what he will do and continue to do in the future for all of creation, including you and me. Over the past 11 months, I've appreciated a song we've been singing in our worship times called Let the King Descend. It is a prayer asking Jesus to descend, to come into the specific contexts of our lives, to come into the particular situations 
and circumstances, the very real ones, the very practical ones that we face. But my prayer for this and next week is that we might let the king ascend. That we will let God get bigger, if I can use a kind of crass way of saying it, and we will rediscover his grand and beautiful story. We came to California in 1995, and ever since I've heard the occasional person speak Southern Californian, and other times just describe Southern California, the grapevine, the valley, the 405. Orange County, it's the first time I ever heard somebody say, where do you live? Orange County. Who, who says they're county? Where's that? Well, it's in Southern California. Well, what city? Well, there's so many of them, we just call it Orange County. Never heard that before. The 10, the 210, the smog, the traffic, the size of Southern California, people would talk about. The population density, how it differs so much from Northern California, and so on it would go. And I guess I sort of got it, but not really. Then one afternoon while we were down in Azusa for our son Sam's college graduation, Julie and I hiked up a mountain on the west side of Azusa. And at the time, I don't know if it's still there, but at the time, there was this big white cross about halfway up this mountain. You could see it from the freeway. It was very large. And when Julie and I reached the cross, I remember looking out over the vastness of Southern California. And for the first time, I saw the bigger picture. And up on that mountain, some of those Southern California phrases and concepts and ideas made a bit more sense because I could see them in their larger context, especially the phrase, the smog because it was just hanging there. So let's just sit in this metaphor for just a minute. As people of faith, we need regular hikes up the mountain to reorient ourselves to God's bigger picture and story. We need regular hikes out of the valley and up the mountain to rediscover God's kingship and the beauty of his kingdom. And we need this because the obligations of our everyday lives have a way of trapping us down in the valley. And down in the valley, we tend to see what's right in front of us, but we often and easily lose the bigger picture. In the rush of everyday life more specifically, we lose the bigger picture of who God is, what God is doing now and going forward, what all of this life thing is ultimately about, and our place in God's big story. When we get stuck down in the valley, buried in the obligations of everyday life, it seems to me God, the King, and his gospel shrink. Not actually shrink, but practically. Bills and jobs and pleasures and struggles and inconveniences and the news and political noise and many other things shrink God. And he and his story are reduced to a kind of religious trinket that sits nicely on a shelf in our lives, but he and his story do not frame or shape the essence of our lives. In the language of Deuteronomy, life happens and we forget. This is the way of the human. 
really. I mean, no matter how sincere our intentions, this very kind of thing happens to all of us. So think for just a second about the nonstop swirl in your everyday life in the valley that you live in every day. And here's the point. For the next two weeks, let's be extra intentional about letting the king ascend over the swirl. Let's climb up the mountain together and reorient to God and the big picture of his kingdom. So what is this kingdom story? It can be puzzling for people like us who live within the political system we live in to resonate with king and kingdom language. But the Jewish people to whom the Bible was originally given and is mostly about were intimately familiar with kings and kingdoms. They knew about Pharaoh and the kingdom of Egypt, King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, Emperor Caesar and the kingdom of Rome. They had lived under these regimes. They knew about David, who was a good king, Solomon, who was a B-minus king, and after him, mostly bad kings and corrupt kingdoms. They knew about all that. And yet, throughout their difficult history, in some of the worst of times, they heard messages from prophets or whomever similar to Psalm 145, verse 13, that we read a moment ago. Your kingdom, God, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. But what does that mean? I mean, if God is king, I imagine they wondered, why all the mess? Why Egypt for over 400 years? Why Babylon? Why Rome? What does it mean for God to be king in today's world? This verse is no less true for us, Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generation. What about now in this world? Filled with chaos, violence, oppression, injustice, suffering, and confusion. What does it mean for God to be king and for his kingdom to endure? See, the phrase, the kingdom of God, appropriately evokes ideas from the po political realm. If that's where our mind is going, we're going in the right direction. The kingdom of God is about then who is in charge. Who is governing? Who has authority? So the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God. His kingdom is the realm, or if you prefer, the place where he is in charge, where he governs, where what he says actually happens, where his will is done. And you may or may not realize this, but you have a kingdom. And I have a kingdom. And my eight-month-old granddaughter has a kingdom. It is where we have say over things, where what we want done gets done, where our will is accomplished, where we are in charge, we reign. God also has a kingdom. And we see his kingdom on display in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first verse in the Bible says, in the beginning God. 
And in the remainder of the first and second chapters of Genesis, everything God says and does happens exactly the way he wants. He says, let there be light. And light does not then ponder and stroke its chin and say, hmm, do I want to be? No, light appears. And as creation continues to unfold, all of creation perfectly aligns and cooperates with God and with his reign. The sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the animals don't resist God in any way, shape, or form. So in Genesis 1 and 2, all of creation is in step with the king and with his kingdom. Nature, animals, people living in union with God and with each other, we call it paradise. So the kingdom of God is God's deal. It's not something we create. It's not something we bring forth if we try hard enough. And it's not confined to an invisible realm within us we call the soul. The Bible says that from the very beginning, God was and everything moved in perfect step with him. Reality, in other words, was centered in God and in his reign. And it was all good. Crucial point. It was all good. Flourishing for every creature involved. Every particle of paradise was flourishing because God was reigning over it and it was cooperating with him. Now, when you and I think of the heart of the Christian story or the heart, the essence of the Christian message, what words or descriptions come to mind? When we think of the phrase, the gospel, for instance, what comes to mind? If you're asked the question, what's the heart of the Christian story? What's the essence of it all? What sort of things come to mind and pop into your head? It seems to me our responses to these questions sometimes come from a valley view instead of a mountain view. History actually has shown this. We take an important piece of the Christian story or gospel and we make it the whole of the story or gospel. So our answer to these questions, what's the heart of the Christian story? What's the heart of the gospel? Our answers to these questions might be some combination of forgiveness of sins, heaven after we die, do the right thing, avoid the wrong thing, work for justice, live on mission, share our faith with others, all of which are crucial and essential pieces of the story, but none are the whole story. None represent the grand, majestic, big picture. A guy named Brian Zand, smart guy, pastor, thinker, wrote it, wrote and put it this way, and you can see this on the screens. The Christian faith is not a theology or a philosophy. Christianity is a story. This is a key sentence. It is a meta-narrative. It is a grand overarching story that enables us to make sense of human history. It is the story of how God is setting right a world gone wrong and doing it through Jesus Christ. It is the story that starts with creation in Genesis and takes us all the way through to new creation in Revelation. So for Brian Zand, the heart of the Christian story 
The up the mountain story is this, and here I quote him, God is setting right a world gone wrong and doing it through Jesus Christ. For theologian Karl Barth, long since died, but a respectable, sort of pivotal, pivotal theologian, Karl Barth, the heart of the Christian story, according to Karl Barth, real simply, God himself ruling. For theologian N.T. Wright, very well-known present-day theologian, the heart of the Christian story is this. The good news of the kingdom, he says, is that the God who made the world, who has longed to rescue and redeem it from its trouble, is now at last doing so. The creator God is reigning and putting things right. Now, Jesus is the central character in this kingdom story, and we're going to talk all about Jesus and the kingdom next Sunday. But the kingdom story unfolds from the first pages of Genesis to the last pages of Revelation. It is one of the main threads that ties the Bible together into one consistent book. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God is moving history in a particular direction toward a particular end. Call it all things made new. Or call this end God reigning and putting things right. Or call this end right out of the Lord's prayer, his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Or call it God setting right a world gone wrong through Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we don't have time to dive into every verse, every passage, every narrative, every story, but a brief flyover of the Bible might help us get a mountain view of God and his kingdom. So it all starts in Genesis chapter 1. I referenced this a minute ago. Genesis chapter 1, God creates. His creation cooperates. Everything is in step, union with God, union with each other, and everything's moving and all of it is good. It's called paradise. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. God makes a man and his woman, and a woman, crucial phrase, God makes man and woman in his image. And verse 26 says, he creates man and woman in his image, and here I'm quoting straight from verse 26, so that they may rule over animals and nature. There's that word, that political idea, that governing idea. We're told, we're told God blessed the man and the woman and said, and here I quote again, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and Subdue it. Rule over the fish and everything else. So plan A was this. God is king, and believe it or not, he shares his reign with human beings. Right from the beginning, God gave us our job description. Be in relationship with God and bring his goodness to the earth. Live in union with him. Sometimes we call it walk with him and carry out his reign over the earth. That was the plan. That was plan A. That was paradise. Now, the Bible is a long book 
with many pages upon which are many little words. But by the third chapter of this big book, plan A has already crumbled. So Genesis 3 is the story of evil's big win. Being made in the image of God, remember that phrase, being made in the image of God was not enough for human beings. We wanted to be like God. That was the temptation in Genesis 3 and verse 4. God knows you will be like him if you eat this fruit. So being made in God's image was not enough. We wanted to be like God. Reigning with God was not enough. We wanted to reign as God. So Adam and Eve sinned. They did what they wanted. They became their own God. They decided what was good and what was right and what was best. They took charge. They reigned. And they reigned without God. And their reign without God produced blame, shame, chaos, confusion, sweat, mess, heartache, pain, and brokenness. And those were the positive results. But even in the middle of this early mess, God intervenes and foretells where his story is heading. He says to evil in Genesis 3 and verse 6, the day will come when Eve's offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's talking about Jesus at the cross. And so will we next week. It wasn't enough for Adam and Eve to be made in God's image. They wanted to be God. And ever since, again, this is crucial, ever since a powerful dark curse has gripped humans and this world, creatures no longer cooperate with God. Nothing works all the time. Everything and everyone is broken. Paradise is indeed lost. We get to Genesis 4. Adam and Eve had two sons. By the way, we're not going to go through every chapter of the Bible. I know that could get a little long, but Adam and Eve had two sons named Cain and Abel. The brothers brought their offerings to God. Abel's was an act of worship, and God approved. Cain's was a duty, and God kind of went, eh, and was sort of underwhelmed. So Cain killed Abel. Think about that. We're right after this curse has come. We're right after the union with God and humans has been broken. And we've already got one human killing another human. So on the heels of humans reigning without God, anger and jealousy and competition and violence arrive in full force. Genesis chapter 11, humanity is on a roll and humanity says, I'm quoting right from the Bible here, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches up to the heavens so, I'm quoting, that we may make a name for ourselves. That's what we do. We're in charge and this is how we do it when we're in charge. We make it about us. And out of this Genesis 11 mess comes a city known as Babylon. It means confusion. 
which is exactly what happens when we play king and seek our kingdom. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you. I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is now on to the next phase of a revised plan. Remember, plan A is in pieces at the beginning of Genesis 3. So God is now going to form a people, a nation, and he's going to reign over this nation. He will be their king, and if they cooperate, his kingdom will break into their lives and into their relationships, and they will become a new kind of community that will show the world who God is and what life in him is all about and what life with each other can be like. It will be clunky at times, and it will be terrifically imperfect, but if the people will let God ascend and be their king, there will be a mini restoration of the peace, goodness, and joy that was there in paradise. This is now the plan. And when that happens, the world will see it and say, what's happening there? And the world will be drawn into it. And believe it or not, all the way back in this Genesis 12, we find God saying to Abraham, and everyone will be blessed through what happens through this new community of people who are letting me reign over them. But then we come to 1 Samuel 8. If you're a write-it-down person, I would urge you to write down 1 Samuel 8 and read it sometime uh, soon. It's a pivotal point in the biblical story. It's a pivotal point in the kingdom story. God has been the king of Israel. The promise he gave to Abraham is underway. It's clunky, it's imperfect, but it's underway. A people is being formed. God is the king of Israel. It is indeed a theocracy operating in the same formula as Genesis 1, meaning God ruling the nation of Israel through people who rule his way. But now the people in 1 Samuel 8 rebel, and they say to the prophet Samuel, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. We don't want God to be our king. We want a human king. And Samuel responds, uh, humans don't make very good kings. And they say, we don't care. We want a king. And here I'm quoting straight from 1 Samuel 8, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us. Remember what happened? The first time human beings tried to be like something, they weren't created to be like. So God says to Samuel, they've rejected me as their king. So give them a human king. And then, and I quote God here, but tell them, what the king who will reign over them will do to them. And if you read it, it's ugly. Humans usually don't make good kings. And then all sorts of stuff happens that we're not going to go chapter by chapter through, but then we come along to Isaiah chapter 9. We talked about this all during Advent. 
Here's what Isaiah chapter 9 says. A child will be born to you, and the government, there's that word again, his rule, his reign, the government will be on his shoulders of the greatness of his government and shalom. There'll be no end. He will reign, that word again, on David's throne and over his kingdom and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Sounds a lot like Psalm 143. Next week, we dive into Jesus in the kingdom. That's what Isaiah 9 is pointing to. But just for fun, and because we're just about out of time, let's peek at the end of the kingdom story and see what happens. I mentioned earlier, this runs from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible, the end of the story. Let me read Revelation 22 to give us a sample, verses 1 through 5, and it's up there on the screen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. See, when it's all said and done, there's a city. And the throne of God is in the city. God's dwelling place is among the people, and the people are from all different nations and tribes across the earth. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, all things made new. It says, I read it, it says right in that passage, no longer will there be any curse. That's drawing all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. No longer will there be any curse. Can you imagine a world where there's no more curse? What this is saying is when it's all said and done, the curse will be reversed. The throne of God will be in the city. King and kingdom fully realized and central. There'll be no more night. Remember Genesis 1? There'll be no need for the sun. Recreation has happened. All things may do. And then this little gem in chapter 22 and verse 5. They, meaning his servants, meaning his people, will reign with God. Somehow, don't ask me how. Forever and ever. Made in the image of God. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule. And now at the end of Genesis 22, his people will reign with God 
forever and ever. Paradise restored. Now, maybe the two-word question floating in some of your minds is, so what? What does all this have to do with tomorrow? Well, we don't have time to go into all that, but let me just sort of throw a couple things out. If somehow during the last 20 minutes we've been able to hike up the mountain just a little bit and recognize the magnificence, the splendor, the grandeur, the bigness of this story, the wonder of God the King and of the power of his kingdom, if we've been able to grasp just a hair that, wait a minute, this is where this is all moving This is what God is up to. This is the clunky and imperfect trajectory that God is taking human history toward. Then does that not have something to say about our purpose in our lives right now and tomorrow? Does that not have something to say when we face struggles of various kinds and they batter against us? and cover our eyes and make us go, there's nothing more than this, there is more than this. Does this not have something today with our, say, to our fears, our future? Does this not have something to say to our nation's future and the fears we have about our nation's future? Does this not have something to say and ways of guiding us in our approach and in our attitude and in our posture to the politics of our nation? Does this not have something to say that is extraordinary and crucial to our children and their future? And how we might want to do whatever we can to introduce them to this glorious story? Does this not have something to say to our mission as individuals and to our mission as a church? Does this not have something to say to me and to you when it comes to our priorities? What sits at the front of our agenda day after day? Does this not have all kinds of things to say about our life together, our ongoing life together as a church? a congregation, the salt, the light. I don't want to go too far ahead on this, but do you realize that we as a congregation, a local body of Christ followers, we are to be a preview of what the future will hold. The love, the goodness, the differences, the diversity, the disagreements, coming together, and we become this repository of God's reign and rule, and we demonstrate how that plays out with human beings. But I don't want to get too far ahead. Does this not have something to say about our death? Whenever that might come. See, the story of the king and his kingdom literally frames, shapes, every single issue and question and particle of our existence. There's not a single one that is outside that frame. Now, I'm going off the assumption that the scripture is true. 
I'm going off the assumption not that what I've explained is 100% correct. Obviously, it probably isn't. I'm going off to the assumption that what I've explained as I understand the Bible is basically correct. And if it is, the king and his kingdom frames, shapes every single issue and question and particle of our existence now and forever. So I cannot think of anything better to conclude our time than to come to the table of our king.